Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week, I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and I'm here with Richard C. Torle. Uh, Richard, do you want to just say hello and remind everybody who you are? <laughs> yes, thank you very much for having me again. Yeah, so this is part two of our earlier uh, episode that we did a couple of weeks ago. My name is Richard. I am a South African living in Berlin, Germany. Yes, I am. I'm part of a team working on a ECM software we call Enio. I like to tinkle a lot, tinkle a lot with Angular projects. I love Angular. I've been working on it for a couple of years now. Um, and yeah, I've also recently started writing about stuff that I discover along the way. And today I would like to share some of that with you guys. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, and what we're talking about is you wrote an article about how to write multi-platform apps in a single code base, which to me feels like a unicorn. And I told you this before <laughs> the, the episode, right? I mean, I remember back when they first came out with Node, right? And the people were like, you can write one code base and it'll work on the front end and the back end. And that turned out to be so not true. And then... <laughs> And then people were trying to make that happen with Meteor. And that also turned out to be not true, right? And then right. and then people were like, oh, now we have Electron. So now we can write desktop apps and, and web apps that are exactly the same. And that turned out to be kind of true, right? Some of you <laughs> can share, but not all of it. But they were talking like, oh, all you have to do is kind of plug it, Electron in and wow. And so, yeah, I'm kind of curious because it, it looks like it really works. And just from what I read on the article... Yeah. So, yeah, but before we get into that, I'm kind of curious, like, what's the story behind this? What, you know, like, how did you get to writing this article in particular? <laughs> well, it's, first of all, um, I think I've mentioned this in the past that always just spend your time in, in, in some of the things that you, you enjoy doing the most, right? And when it comes to writing an article, I think one of the the things or topics that you can write about are basically things that you you work with on a daily basis. So coincidentally, this topic that we're discussing today is something that I do on my day-to-day -day job, which is writing software for cross-platforms. So we're talking about a web app. We've got iOS, uh, we've got Android, and as well as desktop. But yeah, I think the idea was speculating in my mind for a while now. And then it's eventually I just had to <laughs> jump in and just do it. And very interesting stuff that I discovered about myself during this process was that, you know, I 
basically after I wrote the article, I looked at it and I was like, wow. And seeing the feedback um, and the analytics from the, the people that are reading it, you know, I affirmed one thing that, you know, I treasure or I, I appreciate simplicity, which can be very hard to achieve, especially in the field of software development, um, but very important to strive for, right? As makes uh, maintaining software uh, much easier in the, in the long run. But yeah, I think one of the favorite things that I really enjoyed in this process of writing was the the brainstorm, uh, brainstorming phase. <laughs> and if you think about, I don't know if you've written some theses or things like that at, at, at university, it can be hard and discouraging at first. But once you latch onto something which is exciting, it can be rewarding. It can be a rewarding experience. So yeah, I think... One thing maybe I can mention for people that are thinking about jumping in, just find the great, well, let me put it this way. Like the, the thing that I find exciting when I read articles is that most intriguing articles have a common theme. For instance, they, they are usually an easy read, regardless of the, the length of the, of the article. You just don't want to stop reading it, right? <laughs> and some things that go into, into creating such quality content is the structure of your, your article, um, um, as well as focus. Write about something that is focused on a, either a specific technology that you're interested in, or at least something that is solving a problem that most people are interested in. And in this case, Chuck, you, you're a bit skeptical about this cross-platform stuff. But yeah, we, 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 hopefully we can dispel some of the, the myths that you might have heard in the past. And I've also included a link to show note, in the show notes of a great article that I came across before writing my article. And it was a good motivator. It also has some great tips on how to get started and what to consider before you get started. I thought I hit the unmute and I didn't. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I sound smarter on mute. So anyway, yeah, I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense what you're talking about here, especially just in the the sense of, you know, keeping it simple, keeping it focused, keeping these articles together in a mm -hmm. way that makes it easy for people to figure out and flow. But yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this cross-platform thing works and dive in a little bit on, yeah, just how much code sharing there is because as I've said before, I've I've tried writing apps that uh, share code across stuff, and I just haven't had the experience where I was able to share a ton of my code, right? And so mm. sometimes it was worth it, right? Because I didn't have to rewrite certain level layers of stuff. And sometimes it was just, you know, this would have been way easier just to write from scratch. So mm. I'm, I'm a little curious, though, before we dive in, though, when you say cross-platform, what you mean is, is that it works on the desktop, mobile, and web right that's that's pretty much it yes i mean if you look at like the scholarly definition of it in computing specifically cross-platform software means computer software that is implemented on multiple computing mm -hmm. platforms right right which means it must be able to function on more than one computer architecture or operating system for example however in web in web dev this typically means that you develop a, a web app which is then somehow <laughs> translated into source code, um, which is able to run on many platforms. Um, and in most cases, that means native devices, as you mentioned, could be Windows, Mac OS, Linux, as well as um, uh, mobile platforms, the most common one obviously being iOS and, and Android. So basically, cross-platform software development is the practice of actively writing software 
that will work on more than one platform. However, <laughs> developing such a such applications can be time consuming because of different operating systems, because different operating systems have different APIs, right? Mm -hmm. For example, Linux uses a different API for application software than uh, Windows does, for example. But of course, there are many cross-platform programming toolkits and environments which help facilitate the process. I can think of one top of my head, React Native, for example. I was checking out their GitHub pages the, the other day, and <laughs> there's a, a list of platforms that they, they claim to support. They include things like tvOS, Android mm -hmm. TV, wearables, Tizen, and so forth. So there's definitely some leaps and bounds like this technology has improved and continues to improve. But for today's topic and for my own personal experience, I think we're going to zone in a little bit on Electron JS. Yeah, but then there's also other toolkits that you can use that that basically focus on specific uh, platform, for example, gaming platforms and so forth. But yeah, the, all of this sounds very, very good. But of course, it doesn't come it does come with its own challenges. For example, testing cross-platform um, applications may be considerably more complicated and tedious, as well as like you have to deal with UI conventions, right? right. So you think of your iOS, this pinch and gestures and, and all these other things that you need to consider. But there's good tooling out there that allows you to, to handle that complexity. Yeah, that makes sense. I have to say that as far as the cross-platform stuff goes, the system that I am most familiar with is React Native. I've written a couple of apps with it. Ah. Uh, I really like it. Some of the React conventions are a little bit strange to mm. me, but I mean, it works. And, and there are a lot of toolkits that'll get you started. So anyway, yeah, as far as any of that goes, that, you know, that makes sense. But, and I think that's part of where I'm kind of coming at this and going, yeah, it's not as seamless as people make it sound because <laughs> if if you've written a React web app mm -hmm. and then you've tried to translate it into a React native app, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're right. you're gonna have the the especially the UI layer, which is what React is is good at. Right. It just doesn't translate well from the web to my my phone. Right. It's the underlying logic and. And stuff like that. And even then, how you go and access stuff off the web isn't 100% the same. It's hmm. rather similar, but it's not completely the same. I mean, you can go use Apollo on both, right? And that looks the same. But hmm. if you're just hitting RESTful routes and stuff, that's not always 100% seamless in the same way either. And so, hmm. yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm coming <laughs> from with this. Before, before we dive into how to do this, I want to just ask one more why question. And that is... Um, or I guess not necessarily a why, but a when, because some developers are going to, you know, they're going to want this, right? They're going to want an app that kind of runs everywhere. And some apps are fine just working on the web, right? And so what I'm wondering is, is at what point do you feel like developers need to start looking at this and going, oh, I need to care about this. I need to worry about this. I yeah. need to go and actually make my app cross-platform. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a very good question. I mean, it's like for me, it's like whenever I come across new tech and and you and I know that in, in our space, like that seems feels like it's happening almost on a weekly basis, right? Mm -hmm. So why why should I care? Why should developers care about this? Well, in the case of 
cross-platform for me personally, it's 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 two things. It's time and it's money. Effort. You can throw in effort there as well. So first thing that comes to mind is that code re- reusability. By writing just one code, develops, uh, dev, devs can easily target multiple platforms. That in itself just saves you a lot of time and effort. But in terms of how quick you you churn out these these apps. So you can imagine a team, maybe I don't know, three or five developers supporting all these platforms. Of course, if you are diving specifically or in a specific technology, it it will take time and it will take skills and effort. So for me, it's you know the the pace or the the yeah the pace of how quick you can develop that also is something that I consider. And then the third the third thing is how well do you know your market? Where, where is your target market? And where are those people? Most people these days, as you know, you know, they've got a, hand, a cell phone. They're using their mobiles. They, you know, unless if they're sitting at the office uh, in front of a desktop or their laptop, then, you know, they're accessing most of apps uh, via their mobile devices. So mm-hmm. there's definitely that advantage of greater market reach. And again, what I've mentioned, it's cost-effective. It costs you less to develop for all platforms using the same five guys or girls working on that one code base. So yeah, these are the benefits that I've personally seen on the field as well as on at, at my place of work. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, and I like that you brought up the market because a lot of times as developers, you know, we're, we we kind of ignore that piece of life, right? So we mm. we kind of go, oh, well, when we want to provide this extra functionality for our users or something like that, right? Instead of actually, yeah, talking to our business people and saying, okay, have you evaluated the market for whether or not people even want this on the desktop or on the on the mobile phone? I think the mobile phone's kind of a slam dunk in most cases, just because, yeah, if you look at your web traffic, (laughs) 60% or more is going to be coming from phones anyway. So having, having an app, and having some kind of, because let's face it, offline web functionality, it works, mm-hmm. but most people don't expect it to, to work. And so they're, if they're offline, they're not going to use their browser to hit your app. Absolutely. But if, you're, if you have a mobile, dev, uh, mobile app yep. and it can cache some of the stuff and then make requests when it gets back on the internet, you know, you're going to be way better off. And so, yeah, yeah I, I can definitely see that. Absolutely. Uh, so, so what do you need to do this then? I mean, you mentioned Electron. Does Elect- Electron, as far as I know, just does desktop apps? So, are you pulling something else in for mobile, or yeah, what are we that's, looking at um, yeah, that's pretty much exactly. You've hit the nail on the, on the head. So, uh, yes, Electron as it is today, what it gives you when you include it into your project is exactly that uh, support for your desktops. So, we're talking Mac OS, Windows, and Linux. Um, and you'll be surprised. It's easier than you think. In fact, this reminds me of um, ElectronJS slogan. It says, if, if you can build a website, <laughs> you can build a desktop app. Sometimes that might sound a little bit far-fetched. <laughs> Sounds very markety. <laughs> you know, it's got that kind of vibe. But yeah, I think that the best way is to basically just get your toes wet and just really dive into it. But for, for those who, some of the listeners that maybe are not aware of or have played around with this technology, Electron is basically, it's a framework that allows you, uh, the developer, um, to create desktop application using the same tech 
that you already use uh, for building web apps. So that is JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, right? Mm -hmm. These applications, basically, once you've built your app using that that tech that I've just mentioned, this the it allows you to package and run directly on on desktop on these platforms that I've mentioned: macOS, Windows, and Linux. But it's one thing you, I think, listeners need to keep in mind is that like typically you create a desktop app for a specific operating system, right? Right. And using that that OS's specific native application framework, whatever it may be. But however, uh, Electron makes it possible to write your application once using the web technologies uh, that mm-hmm. you already know. So for me, it's no, it really is no brainer. And it was pretty easy to really jump in and get started with it. Just to, right now, it's, it just sounds still more on the abstract, but just to give you an example of some of the, the apps that we built using this tech, TrinJS. So I'm sure a bunch of developers have used VS Code, mm-hmm. Microsoft, Facebook Messenger, Slack, MS Teams, Twitch. All those apps were built using the, uh, this technology. So if you're looking for, for enough proof to see how complex can you build application using this tech so you, you can really go crazy at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so yeah, you mentioned one interesting thing that, so yes, Electron gives you the desktop support, but what about mobile? For that, hang on. I got, I got questions. I got questions. <laughs> don't, don't go there yet. All right. <laughs> so, sure. so one thing is, is that, I mean, how much glue code is there for desktop? Right. Because, I mean, I can't imagine you just say NPM install Electron and you're done. Right. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. guessing there's a little more setup than that, but it sounds like it's pretty minimal. But yeah, I mean, how, mm-hmm. how much are we looking at there? In terms of LOCs, line of code, um, uh-huh. I it's not that much, to be honest, um, that to get you started, you the biggest or the main driver for getting to kicking off this whole process is a um, it's called the main main script. So you can think of it as a node, an electron application is basically a Node.js app, right? Mm-hmm. At, at its core. So so building an app with electron is like building a Node.js application with mm-hmm. a web interface or just building web pages which seamlessly integrate with Node.js. So depending on how you look at it. But just to get into the meat of it at a higher level, there's, I won't go too much into detail how it works under the hood, but the key thing to keep in mind is that Electron works on three key uh, pillars. The first one is, is a Chromium for right. displaying web content, right? So at the end of the day, you basically, it's just a browser. It's just a browser just wrapped around a fancy desktop app. The, the second one is Node.js, the actual library. Mm-hmm. This allows you to work with uh, the local file system and the operating system for your target platforms. And then also it's, it's for more sophisticated software applications, um, you can also tap into their custom APIs uh, that's for working mm-hmm. with OS native functions. So yeah, it's that straightforward. I won't say it's simple because it also depends on exactly what your end goal is. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I can imagine that, yeah, you can get into some stuff that's fairly OS specific, right? You know, the yeah. win- Windows does this and Linux does it different or doesn't do it at all or vice versa. I, I guess the thing that I'm kind of imagining, though, at the same time, though, is if you're going to build an application that has the same experience on mobile, desktop, and web, you're probably going to be coding to the 
most common denominator on all those lowest common <laughs> denominator on all those things, which is going to be the web actually, as yeah. far as just capability reaching into your machine and things like that. And so mm-hmm. you're not going to need a lot of that functionality if it's just a straight up, hey, this is the same app on all three. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, that is definitely, it's a good point. It's something that you, you, you will need to consider. But what I love about this, this cross-platform uh, support, especially with Node, uh, excuse me, with Electron, it does have some very good documentation, very detailed documentation. So if you ever feel kind of lost, they pull you right back out very quickly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so if you're wondering like, so how do I get this desktop platform support? Or like, how do I get started? So as I mentioned, that Electron app is essentially an, an OJS app. So naturally, the first step is to install Node. This right. assumes obviously that you already have a web app project already set up. So mm-hmm. you're just pulling in a library into your existing web app. The next step is like with any other Node.js app, Electron app uses a uh, or uses the, the package JSON file as its main ent- entry point. Mm-hmm. So you would need to add a script which points to that main JS file that I mentioned, which is basically like your your entry point, your the, the thing that kickstarts um, everything else. This main script, uh, let's call it main JS, specifies the entry point of your Electron application that will run in the uh, what they call main process. <laughs> so yes, Electron introduces a few new concepts as well as terminology, which is not so common in in, in web dev. That may may not be a good thing, but you know it's something that you at least need to be to be aware of. Yeah, yeah. But maybe if you, I can just maybe mention the two main terminologies that you should always keep in mind. Like whenever you're developing uh, an Electron app these are the main things that you'll be uh, thinking about almost throughout the, the dev process. The, the, the first one is called, I've already mentioned it, is the, the, the main process, which is responsible for creating web pages. And it does this by creating what we call browser window instances. So each browser window instance is basically running a web page, like a simple web page in its renderer process. Uh, which I'm going to tell you exactly what it is just now. But the, the the key thing is that there's two processes. One is main, the other one is called renderer. The render processes, the, the render process, on the other hand, it manages all the corresponding web pages. So for example, if let's say one, so a crash in one render process does not affect other processes because they are, you can think of them as their own little islands. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the one other key uh, aspect to it, which is, uh, I guess, you, you deal with this with any other uh, application, which is the communication, right? The communication side of things. Electron does that using what they call IPC. It stands mm-hmm. for Interprocess Communication. The, the, the two main things in that space is, well, the first one is called IPC Main for the main process, of course and IPC renderer for, for the render process. But I guess we have a lot to cover today, so I won't go into yeah. details, but just just know that there's a mechanism that allows you to communicate between these processes that we've talked about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think we've kind of gone as deep as we want to just for this because yeah. ultimately this is about just getting your cross-platform app together yes. in one repo. And we can probably just go deep on another episode and talk about Electron there. 
One one other thing that I'm curious about then is as we get into this and we have, let's say we have Electron all set up and it's working as expected. We've got not a tremendous extra, extra amount of code that we have to maintain in order to make it work. How do we start adding mobile into this? Yeah, so so that so yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, naturally, as as we've mentioned, that this we've got the desktop support, mm-hmm. we've got the we've got uh, the web app, right? Whatever right. technology you've used. So now we're thinking iOS and Android for integrating a mobile platform support uh, into your your workspace. There are a couple of options out there, as mentioned earlier, the the React Native and and many others. But for today, I'm going to focus on one specific one, which is called uh, Capacitor or Capacitor ah, JS. Ionic. <laughs> From the Ionic boys and yep. girls. <laughs> yeah, which is an interesting project out of the Ionic team. I personally enjoyed its, or it still enjoy its simplicity. And definitely, you know, I think it's got some of the best documentation mm-hmm. out there. So what is this? What is Capacitor? First of all, it is open source. Yep. So what, what it does is it provides a native runtime and an API layer for, for web applications, right? So that's that's also a loaded statement, but essentially it exposes the native layer through an API in order for you to write code once to interact with the native mobile native uh, platform. This helps you create this cross-platform iOS, Android, as well as PWAs or progressive web apps. And you can use any modern framework, whether it be Vue, React, Angular, or just plain old JavaScript. So so that is what Capacitor is at a high level. To get started with it, there's two ways to start. I'm just uh, going to chime in here for a second. Jump just, in, uh, jump in, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. I, I just want to clarify a couple of things. So right. some folks might be familiar with Ionic having originally been built on Cordova, which is yeah. an Apache project which came out of, I can't remember. I think Adobe had owned it at one point and then they turned it over to Apache Foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was originally PhoneGap. But what happened is, is the folks at Ionic kept running into just some funky things with Cordova. You know, just in the way that it worked, it didn't seem as as Mm -hmm. natural to them. And so they created their answer to that, which is Capacitor, which does more or less the same thing. except it provides a cleaner API and doesn't have some of the cruft of basically what amounts to a a much older project in PhoneGap. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's what you're dealing with. So if you're thinking, oh, well, what about Cordova? What about this? What about that? That's essentially how that came about. And Anyway, it's it's a really yeah. interesting story. We should get somebody on the show to talk about that. <laughs> but and I know we've covered it on JavaScript Jabber, I think. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So that's that's pretty much that. But yeah, it yeah they, I mean, they write the bridge code from the native stuff, the native libraries on iOS and Android over to JavaScript. Yeah, so you don't have to go do it yourself. Absolutely, I, exactly. So in spirit, Capacitor and Cordova are very similar, right? Yes. They both manage a web view and provide some structured way of exposing this native functionality to Mm -hmm. your web code, right? However, Capacitor has a few key differences in its app development uh, workflow. Where in Cordova, you use that config.xml file 
or some similar configuration to mm-hmm. to manage all your plugins. Uh, Capacitor, you actually <laughs> check in your Xcode and Android Studio projects into source control, as well as you also use those specific platforms IDEs when necessary, of course, to do some platform-specific config running or testing and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, so configuration basically changes as changes are made by by editing the, the appropriate platform-specific configuration files directly. So, for example, in, in Android, you'll be working with that Android manifest uh, XML, I think it's called, where else in Xcode it will be the info.plist. So, yeah, that's it's a good point that you made that, that, that they are very similar, but uh, Capacitor basically just simplifies this, mm-hmm. the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. So, what does it take to get Capacitor in there? Yeah. So, there's, there's two ways. There's a recommended way and the not so recommended way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, you know. That reminds me of, uh, how do I put it? Uh, it was Back to the Future, right? Where they're like, we can either take you in the hard way or the easy way. And then they whack him over the head. The easy way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's kind of that scenario, right? But so I'll start with the recommended way, which is, you can either add Capacitor to to an existing project or the, the not-so-recommended way, which is starting just, you know, with a clean, fresh project. But Capacitor was designed primarily to be dropped into an existing front-end project. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it also comes with a simple starting project structure if you'd like to, to start afresh. So my personal recommendation is exactly as how they recommend it, just have an, an existing app and just drop it in there and i'm i'm, I'm gonna just take like one or two minutes to explain uh, how how straightforward it is to to edit to an existing project so essentially you drop in a capacitor into an existing project by running an npm install package right it's, it's called so there's two parts there's capacitor cli so it does like Angular CLI, the, you know, that right. sort of things, writing scripts and so forth. And then there's a core module, which is, you know, aptly mo- uh, named Capacitor Core. And just by just dropping in, uh, so after you've done the NPM install, uh, you just simply run npx cap in it. That will initialize in initialize Capacitor. And then you will install the native platforms uh, you want to target. And so in this case, we're talking about iOS. So simple script like npx cap add ios for ios and then replace ios with android for android and that's very much it <laughs> you will have projects as i mentioned for for android it will be android specific code and for ios same thing but the power of it is that it gives you access to core native apis so, you know, you can immediately start working with the camera, file system, haptics, geolocation, notification, whatever that you want to, that you want to focus on. And you can also extend with your own APIs if you want. But that's essentially the, the, the first step that you need to, to get this whole process uh, started. Awesome. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is 
awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresinangular.com slash Raygun. So uh, one other question that I have, because Ionic has been around in the Angular community for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And Capacitor is the technology that they created and then moved over to, right? Yeah. So what I'm wondering is, is why not go with Ionic? Like, what's the difference? Um, well, so the, so the Ionic team, uh, Ionic specifically, uh, still uses the, and from what I've read, that they, they will continue to use and support uh, Cordova. Um, mm-hmm. However, the, I think the, the idea is now to, to move more towards uh, Capacitor for obvious reasons. They, by they, I mean the Ionic team, they would, by moving towards capacitor basically it allows them to control uh, multiple stacks so this capacitor which is you know part of their project this ionic which is basically the, the ui how do you call it ui library for for building web apps and then the stencil js so by moving towards capacitor this allows them to have control over this stack um, so, for example, if something were to, let's say, iOS introduces or has a breaking change, for example, the guy, the, the Ionic team is able to jump in and make quick changes uh, into Capacitor's API to quickly support whatever breaking change was. So, and with 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 Cordova, on the other hand, it's it's an old project. I think it was early two thousands, if I'm not mistaken. Just. Uh, yeah, run about 2008 or something like that. They, they, I think there's been some slow sort of process in adopt in adopting or keeping up with the native uh, mobile native specific uh, platforms. Um, so I think the whole idea is basically just to get closer to the stack so that they're able to to control that entire stack. But in terms of differences, Chuck, as you ask, is that Capacitor does actually support most of uh, Cordova's plugin ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you, you're really moving out. And also, as I've mentioned, you have the opportunity to extend by, by adding your own plugin. Capacitor right. has a very good uh, API for allowing you to do exactly that. Cool. I'm going to go brush up on my Swift now. <laughs> nice. So, so you just follow the instructions for pulling Capacitor into an existing web app and you're off to the races. One other thing that I've been considering is a lot of the apps that I have, they, how do I put it? So they rely on a backend, right? And in fact, in a lot of the cases that I'm working in, right, a lot of the static assets are served up by that backend, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've been a Ruby on Rails developer for 16 years now, and I like using that as my backend, right? So Mm -hmm. if I have like a, Rails backend, Angular frontend app. How does that affect something like this, for for both the desktop and the the mobile? 
I mean, can I just lift the front end and just go that way? So, so you moving towards the app architecture, is that uh, something that you, you're thinking about, right? Right. Um, Let's say that I just have an angular on, I have, it's, it's all angular on the front end. Right. I don't want to get into like server side rendered Ruby stuff, but I I think that's well beyond the (laughs) scope of this, but let's say that I have a single page app on the front end that's all written in angular, but I have a rails API backend. My angular code probably just calls into my backend and may just use like unqualified URL paths instead of like a full with the, the protocol and the domain and the right. path. So if if I have something like that, am I going to have to go clean that up and say, hey, you're actually going to go talk to myapp.com slash whatever instead of just slash whatever? Well, not necessarily. I, I think, um, yeah, without knowing exactly the architecture and, you know, the the, the interface, the API, it'll be very hard to, 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 to say right. concretely. But you touched on the, that you, you gave an example that you have in, your Angular is basically your, your framework of choice in, in this instance. So in terms of cross-platform app, Angular is basically the glue. That's what binds everything okay. together, right? So Angular not only so Angular not only provide tooling which allows you to quickly build features like what you've mentioned just now, but it also provides, in my opinion, some of the great great like best practices for organizing your code, right? So to give a concrete example, this could be perhaps a I don't know a selfie app or TikTok or whatever. <laughs> Actually, mm-hmm. I've never used TikTok, but you know I've seen videos created with it. So let's say it's a video sharing app, right? <laughs> let's pass um, ourselves as cool <laughs> off as cooler than we are. We use TikTok all the time, bro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So let's say you want this app to run on the web, mobile devices. Well, at least the most prominent ones, which is Android and iOS. Right. And you also want this app to be installable in a desktop application. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the context of Angular, uh, you first you create an Angular app, the standard way uh, with right. ng-new and your app name. Mm-hmm. Or if you plan to have multiple applications, Angular applications, so thinking, I'm talking monorepo uh, kind of style architecture, mm-hmm. you can use ng new with the app name but pass in the flag create application false that allows you that allows you a workspace name to be different from the initial app name right and it ensures that the that all applications subsequent applications or libraries that you would add to to that workspace and they all reside in the project subfolder then add your angular applications using the ng generate app or application, and then you pass in the app name. Based on your project requirements, of course, you select uh, whichever option works for you. But by default, this gives you out-of-the-box support for, for the browser because Angular is primarily a web framework with extra powers, of course. Then you develop your, your app using web technologies that you, you know and love. But in the end, uh, you have a web app as an aside, though, uh, Chuck, uh, I gotta mention this. I'm not sure if you've heard of this website called WhatWebCanDo.today. Uh huh. Uh, I haven't heard yeah. of that one. I've, oh, okay. I've used Can I use a whole bunch, but ah, okay. <laughs> now I'll include it in the show notes. But basically, it shows you what kind of features the web currently supports. So, for example, there's an image capture API, which allows you 
to control or it allows your web application to control the advanced settings of your device's camera. Mm. So think of zoom, white balance, ISO, focus points, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, to take photos based on those settings. And there's also another one that I like, which is called a media recorder API. This one allows you to record audio and video stream, uh, media I've streams. played with that one. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm an audio nerd. I was like, oh, I could do this on the webpage. <laughs> nice, exactly. So like the web continues to advance, but does not yet quite match up to the native devices. And so that's where you would use Electron Capacitor to add support for those native platforms. So I, I guess we're... We're kind of getting toward uh, the end of our, our time here. And uh, the thing that I'm wondering now is, and, and I'm going to kind of hearken this back to something else that I talk about a lot, is testing. So testing mm -hmm. is much easier to get into your app and be doing it right if you start from the beginning, right? You start yeah. testing when you start your app, right? And I'm wondering if that's the same case with this, right? The same with like internationalization. There are a bunch of things, you know, <laughs> accessibility. All those things are easier to get in initially and then just keep up on as opposed to maintaining or trying to go in after the fact and go, we got to make this all accessible or we got to make this all responsive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that the same here where it's easier if you pull all the architectures in at once or you know, if, if you're a ways down the road, is it not, is it not so painful just to kind of go, okay, now we're going to make this desktop app and it's a day or two. And then you're like, Oh, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. But I think for me, I think, you know, with any tech approach with caution, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, take baby, baby steps. So for, for instance, suppose like in your example, you have this large, medium to large uh, application, uh, which is primarily web-based, or maybe you already have a desktop and you want to pull in now using the same code base to support for mobile. So for, for me, I mean, the first approach would be to first try and pull in maybe one platform. So maybe for the next, I don't know, couple of sprints, you know, you would do Android and focus on that. So get the guys up and running or ramp up to prepare for getting the, pro the, the Android support into your existing platform. Testing, yeah, Chuck, I mean, <laughs> it can be hard, but I think, as you mentioned, if you start testing early on, so I'm talking about these early baby steps. So the first thing that you, you introduce to the code base, make sure that that is covered in terms of testing. And by testing, I mean, you can use whatever is applicable for, for that specific platform. Cypress, obviously, end-to-end -end testing, um, as well as unit tests, of course. But definitely jump in and, and get that testing early on so that you know as the application grows bigger and bigger and you add more features, uh, camera support, haptics, and all those other funky features we love, mm -hmm. then you know that at least your base is is well covered. Yeah. So any advice for people who are kind of starting this out on their own and starting a new app? Yeah, I would say do your research, plan out your project Use, I like to say this, like use the right tool for the right job. Just because you've got a hammer doesn't mean that you must, you know, nail every, <laughs> hit every nail on the, you know, on the wall, right? Just do your research and find out what is the, the best tool for 
your specific situation. Then you, you're free to develop the next Shiny app for all the platforms for maximum reach. Yeah, it's funny because people, t- it, I, I've heard this advice from people before on different things. It's like, hey, you know, go do your research and then make a plan. And then what happens is somebody's going to go, well, that's not agile. And I'm just going to tell you, if that was your reaction, don't be dumb. Okay, I should be nice on this show. But what agile is, is we gather what information we can without it taking forever, obviously. You know, this isn't a delaying tactic. But go do your homework. Go figure out what you think it's going to take and kind of have a plan in mind. Agile is, is, oh, we've been doing this for two weeks. This part of the plan is garbage. It doesn't, we were misinformed. We we know more now than we did then. So you adapt the plan. Okay. So I think this is really actually a wise move. If you're not familiar with this kind of an approach. Yeah. Go do a little homework, spend a day or so, kind of get your head around what it's going to take, figure out how you want to start approaching it. And then, yeah, when you get in and you go, oh, okay, I struggled with this. I went and looked it up. It turns out that there's a new approach that works better than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) So what about the folks that have, like we said, a well-established app? It's out there. It's making money. And they realize, you know what? Some of our folks want a desktop app, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do then? Yeah. So, yeah, in, in that case, I would, like, for me, obviously, I can only, you know, give advice on based on something that I've, I've worked on personally. So Right. There are a lot of things you don't know about this app. I get it. It's called Legacy Code, folks. Yeah. Oh, Legacy Code. That, that, that is real. That is so real. So um, real. Yeah, absolutely. The, it's You are going to, especially if you're working on a large code base, there will definitely be challenges. Mm-hmm. But, again, I would say just do a, a spike it out right just give it a try give it maybe two weeks and say uh, we're just gonna go for it just drop in electron do simple basic functionality first you don't have to support all the features immediately all at once mm-hmm. right start off with a couple of features and see how that works out but also keep an eye on the the architecture so if you're using if you are one of the lucky ones using angular framework as i mentioned it's got great documentation on the best practices on how to structure your code in a smart way to help you grow with the app to help you maintain your app in, in the in the long run yep absolutely what do Angular upgrades look like on this? I mean, uh, of course, I'm I'm thinking of like upgrades <laughs> from like three to four to five that were a little scarier than say eight to nine to ten to eleven, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. But but yeah, imagining that yeah somebody's on like Angular eight and they're looking at okay, we want to get up to Angular twelve's coming out soon. What are we looking at there? Like, what are there any gotchas or is it just Hey, you know, it, it generally just works. It's, it generally just works. <laughs> but that's the short answer. The long answer is that, I mean, if you look at the history of the Angular upgrades, um, it's, I can't think of one where there was like a serious, or maybe Angular 6, or um, where there was serious like changes, like breaking changes. So from that perspective, I would say it's fairly safe. But then again, it depends on the complexity. It depends on that legacy code that you were talking about. For example, where we're working on a hybrid application. So not only are we worried about 
upgrading to the next Angular version, but then we also need to make sure that our AngularJS code is still functioning, still running efficiently. We still need to take care of the Angular X side of things, which where what we call it. We have to take care of old plugins from the Cordova world. We have to take care of desktop and its integration to the Microsoft Windows world. There's, there's a lot, right? But it's something that you it gets better with time. But again, right. my advice is just start small and then slowly build up to it. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. So I, I guess the last question is, is, and we should probably ask this first, but besides Tetris, what have you built with this? <laughs> very, very, very. And, and I, said te- I said Tetris because if you go read the article, that's what he walks you through. He's like, <laughs> hey, here's a Tetris app and we're going to make it run everywhere because I don't waste enough time playing games. Right, exactly. (laughs) God, Chuck, that's a very good question. So as if you remember what I mentioned right at the beginning is that this is technology that I work with on a daily basis. It's not not the entire stack. So instead of Capacitor, we're still using Cordova. But in terms of what you can do with exactly what we've discussed today is anything and everything, right? Mm -hmm. Because the support is there. The technology is getting better and better. So on a practical level, I mean, we've our application that I've mentioned earlier on, um, it's called Enayo. You can download it from the app stores. It's extremely rich, uh, feature rich, uh, uh, feature rich. It's been, I think, I don't know, it could be about four years, almost five years in development so far. And we have all this complexity as well uh, that we deal with on a daily basis. So, you know, take it from me, Chad, it's a safe bet. <laughs> if if we can manage it, you know, with all this complexity, I think if you are looking at a medium uh, or smaller, uh, smaller, smaller app and use, it's fairly newish in terms of you don't have to support like a lot of legacy code. There's this literally the sky is the limit. Um, I think the technology is ripe for you to do in basically any any kind of app. I mean, look at VS Code. That is an extremely mm-hmm. feature-rich application, and it uses the very same technologies we've discussed. Awesome. All right. Well, before we get to picks, do you want to remind people where they can get in touch with you? I'm assuming, yeah, Facebook or sorry, not Facebook. I don't even know why I said Facebook because <laughs> I don't like Facebook, but Twitter and GitHub and places like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the easiest one is Twitter at Slick Rick, S-L-I-Q-R-I-C. Oh, nice. I like that one. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, it's my name. I mean, that's basically what mine is. So, yeah. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Let's shout out about some stuff. I'm, I'm going to start us off here. So I think... On the last episode that we did, unless it got canceled, because we had a couple that have done that. So I went to this uh, retreat in, oh no, last week I was still coming back. So yeah, this is my first Mm. week back. So now I can pick all the good stuff. All (laughs) right, here goes. So I went to this retreat. It It was kind of a mix between like a conference and a retreat. But there's a men's group that I'm a part of that's got guys all over the world. Most of them are in the US. And... 
anyway, there's a there's a bunch of guys that I talk to every week that are part of this group. And uh, so, yeah, so we had a big get together in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. Nashville's a great town. I really like it. Mm. But yeah, so we we got there and we just kind of went really, really deep on stuff. Right. So mm. we had conversations about what we thought everybody was good at. We had mm. conversations about stuff that we feel like each of us need to improve on. We, we just dove in on like family stuff and mm. personal stuff and business stuff. And oh, man, it was wow. so, so good. And there were a couple of things that really came out of it. One of them is we did, there was a lot of conversation about relationships and, and how relationships matter. And that was just one big takeaway. And so I'm going to kind of shout out about that, just relationships, cool. right? When I got back, I actually called up a few people that I hadn't talked to in about a year. And, you know, just, hey, how's this? How's it going? How's life? How are things? What can I do to help you out? Hey, give me a call. Like one of the people I called was one of the guys that organizes NGConf, right? And I'm just like, I'm like, look, if you get in a pinch, right? (laughs) Make an NGConf go off, call me up, right? Because they're local guys, right? Right. So it's like, you need a cord, you need a, you know, anything, you know, just call me and I'll just (laughs) bring it over, right? Uh, (laughs) You know, kind of thing, right? But mm-hmm. it, it's just great to connect and just be like, hey, how's, you know, how's your family? How's your, mm-hmm. you know, how's your business? How's your life? How's, and yeah, I feel like I've been able to offer some support for the folks that are out there and part of the community. And so I, I really kind of took away from that. And I'm actually setting up, and this is the other big takeaway. So these are more actionable things. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, one of the things I took away is I've been moving all of my, processes and stuff for the podcast and for other things into monday.com so i'm going to pick monday.com i think i picked clickup.com a while back but monday Monday monday.com it they're 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 kind of the same thing actually but i'm finding that monday.com has a few more automation features that i really want Ah, the 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 main clincher for me though was that i met there was a 17 year old young man there Mm. who had done this for a friend of mine, but he had gone in. And so this other friend of mine, he runs like a copywriting business. And so they write emails and blog posts and stuff for for other companies, right? They just ghostwrite them. So nobody right. knows it's them, right? Except mm. for the business owner and anyone the business owner tells. Um, but he set up the whole process for them. And so, you know, I'm paying him a few hundred dollars and he's setting the same thing up for me for the podcast uh, processes. Ooh. Wow. And so at the the end of the day, it's going to be, hey, you know, do this, now do this, now do this. And it's going to automatically inform people that they need to get it done. Jeez, so, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it it integrates with Zapier as well. So if somebody schedules a new episode, then it will put it into Monday and set everything up so the process can get run. And so I'm I'm super duper happy with that. <laughs> and so Monday.com is one. The the other one and this is more out of, so I've been doing the Dev Influencers Accelerator. And right. I've got a couple of people now who are releasing podcasts on a regular basis. One of them's on Flutter. The other one's on Quasar, which is built on Vue.js. But they're like, okay, now what? And I'm like, well, now you got to grow your show, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the best ways to grow your show is actually to get on other podcasts, right? Because huh. you don't have to explain to people on other po- who listen to other podcasts, here's how you get a podcast, right? You just tell them where to get yours, right? right. And so um, 
you know, you just make sure that the content's good so that they'll go check it out. And then you make sure that the content on yours is good so they keep coming. So the tools that I use for that, I'm just going to put those out there. One of them is LinkedIn. And I, I pay for the LinkedIn. I can't remember what it is, but it's just the pro level stuff. So right. I get a certain number of in mails so I can send email or messages to people that aren't in my network um, or who aren't my first level connections. But LinkedIn is terrific for finding people who work for particular companies. It's also really good for finding people who, um, like if somebody has a podcast or something, it's usually mm-hmm. pretty easy to identify them if you know their name. Ah. And most people use their name when they talk on their show. So it's not right. that terribly hard. Um, but yeah, so then once I have, once I found them on there, the trick is, is that if they're your first level contact in LinkedIn, you can pull their email off of there because it'll expose it to you, right? They figure, Mm. you know them, so you probably have their phone number or their email or whatever they've exposed. But if you're not, and most of the people that I'm reaching out to are not, then I use a tool called Mm hunter.io. And if you know what company they work for, or you say you have the domain for their podcast, right? you just punch that in there and then you punch in their name. And uh, what I find is like 99% of the time, it gives Mm -hmm. me a good email address for the person I'm looking for. (laughs) So so that I can reach out to them, right? And I'm not spamming them or anything. And there's a whole process for this, right? Because you don't want to just say, hey, can I come on your show? Right? (laughs) And then I kind of lay that out in the, the... uh, influencers accelerator because they're I'm kind of building a course at the same time. So when mm. they ask me for stuff, I record a video that walks them through it. But what's interesting is, and I know I've been going on for a long time, but this all ties together because essentially then the process for the podcast interviews to mm. get on the other shows is I have my virtual assistant go out and find the podcast that I need to be on, right? So mm. I just said, look, anything related to code, I want to be on it, right? Mm. And so she went and looked up Elixir, and then she went and looked up Ruby, and then she went and looked up JavaScript, and then she went and looked up Angular, and she went, you're right. And so mm. she just went down the list, and she listed out all the hosts for all the shows, right? So now I have names of people I can go look up on LinkedIn, right. get their email addresses off of Hunter.io. But all that process is now also, and this is something I've been doing on my own, but that whole process is now automated in Monday. And so <laughs> when we start putting the 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 podcasts in there and putting the hosts names in there, right. Mm. Then it'll say, okay, well you put these people in as podcast hosts. Now you need to go find their email address, their LinkedIn, their Twitter, Uh their Facebook, et cetera. So that I can go and reach out to them. And then I've been doing the outreach myself. And the reason is, is because again, like I said, if you just send them kind of the form letter, Hey, can I come on your show? Mm-hmm. That might work for some of these shows Yeah, for me, because I'm so well established in the podcast space, mm. but it won't work for most people. And to be perfectly honest, I don't want to form letter people. So mm. I'm actually personalizing it. And so if I have all this contact information for them, then I can personalize it. Right. So all I spend right. an extra two or three minutes I go look at their social media feeds. I go check out what happened on their podcast. I guess I'm giving away the process for, <laughs> for getting yourself invited on a podcast. But right. I go through the work, right? And then at the end of the day, I send them an email and just let them know, hey, I saw that you're doing this. I really like this. You talked about this on your show. I think I have a relevant follow-up topic, right? And then I, I just, you know, and, and then what the other thing I do is I say, hey, I really liked how you talked about this thing on your show. Do you want to come on mine? And by, by kind of offering the reciprocal, right? 
hey, do you want to come on my show? Hey, can I come on yours? My success rate's been pretty good. It so, works. It works, um, yeah. But, but the okay. whole process is on Monday, the whole mm. thing. And wow. so I, I just stick them in there and then it's okay. Fill in the host, find the host contact, right? And so it prompts my VA to do all that work, go do kind of the pre-sales because it is a sale. It's just, I'm not getting money mm. for it. But right. do all the pre-sales work and then I line up the sales call and make it happen. And the thing is, is they benefit from coming on my show too. So anyway, if you have a process for something and you want to automate, because some of the automation is, hey, editor, the files, the files Mm. are uploaded, right? Right. And then, you know, it doesn't automate any of the editing or anything like that, right? But then when he, when he's done editing, then he'll put the, the link in for the finished episode, right? And when he does that, that triggers the next layer right and so there's manual steps in there all the way along but it lets it lets my uh my other person know my production and publishing person know okay the you know the uh, the audio file is done and hey i've got a summary written for the show notes so you know boom my next step is to get this sucker scheduled for the day it's supposed to go out wow and so anyway that's that's the way that that works and it's really really powerful and i'm really digging this on Monday. The other thing though, is that when I was talking through this with this kid, he, he, he asked me a whole bunch of questions about the process and what I want the process to be. And so we actually built in some of the stuff that my previous virtual assistant was doing that my current one isn't. And that is like getting things scheduled for social media and getting the notifications to go out to our guests. So, right, right. You'd get an email that said, Hey, Richard, your episode's up right here here's here's how you share it here's an easy way to do this that and the other and just right and so it it makes the whole thing just really really simple so anyway that's that's what i'm working on and i'm really really enjoying that so uh definitely go check out monday.com i'll put a link to it in the show notes and then i'm also going to just yeah mention that i did put up some episodes on relationships as bonus episodes on pretty mm. much all of the podcast feeds on devchat.tv. And I had like three of them on the Dev Influencers podcast. Ah. So you can go find those at devinfluencers.com slash podcast. That's cool. All right, Richard, what are your picks? All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the first one, I've got a, um, a couple. Uh, the first one is NVIDIA Shield. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to play around. It's a, it's a streaming console device. But it also, you can also play games with it. It comes with a keypad and whatnot. It mm-hmm. runs on, uh, I think it's Android uh, TV. Um, but what I love about it is myself and, and, and my kids, th- these guys, I don't know when do they practice, but like there's this one specific game that my little one just kicks my behind all the time, right? <laughs> like I'm not very big on gaming, but yeah, they, they're pretty good at it. So NVIDIA Shield, but also for the streaming capabilities of, uh, of the device itself, I think it's, you know, it's it's what, I don't know, six years old now, but I think it's still one of the best streaming devices out there. So that is my first pick. The second one, is is an article written by a guy called Sashko Stubailo. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it cor- correctly, but I spoke about it earlier on, and it's titled How to Write a Great Technical Blog Post. You can find it on freecodecamp.org. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's well-written, it's succinct, and it basically hits the point home. So check that out. 
The second one, the third one is freecodecamp.org. We spoke a little bit about this the last time, Chuck, if you remember. So a shout out to Quincy and his team and the community at Free Code Camp. And also the last, last but not least is uh, indepth.dev, uh, as well as the community. Max, uh, I think Max is doing a great job, you know. Um, yeah giving the platform to a lot of aspiring writers, myself included, and so forth. Very, very good community today. So shout out to them. Um, and last last one is, I mentioned it earlier on, whatwebcando.today. That's the URL. Uh, check it out. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Richard. This was awesome. And yeah, there's a ton of good picks there that you threw out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. And until next time, folks, Max out. Peace. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.